to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. The musical traditions of African people reflect the genius of the African working class. In his 1969 text, Groundings with My Brothers, African working class intellectual Walter Rodney stated the following, the Black people in the West Indies have produced all the culture that we have. Whether it be steel band or folk music, black bourgeoisie and white people in the West Indies have produced nothing. Black people who have suffered all these years create. That is amazing. The African music of the Caribbean and the U.S. often reflect the tradition of anti-colonial struggle. But Rodney warned of the co-opting of African working class culture by the colonial and Black neo-colonial powers. Walter Rodney noted that the Calypso music produced in Guyana had been strangled by the dictatorship of Forbes Burnham, so the Calypso crown could be won by whoever shouted the loudest praise to the dictator. When it is exploited by parasitic capitalism, African cultural expressions can also reflect the dominant contradictions of colonialism. African activists and culture workers have struggled to overturn these contradictions while upholding the revolutionary potential of African music. One such critic and cultural worker is Trini Trent. Trini Trent is a video blogger and podcaster from Trinidad and Tobago. For the past nine years, Trini Trent has operated the YouTube channel Trini Trent TV, where Trini Trent has offered important political analysis of music and culture throughout the African world. Trini Trent is joined by Alikia Ngoma. Alikia is the Haiti editor for the Burning Spear newspaper, where she provides revolutionary analysis on the struggles in Haiti. Alikia is also a revolutionary musician and singer of our theme song, Colonial Virus. She recently released an extended play album, Freedom in the Mix, that can be found on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. Welcome to the show, Trini Trent and Alikia. Hello, hello. Hey, 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 hey. So Trini Trent, let's start with you. I saw that you recently reached your nine-year mark for your YouTube show. Your show has a very broad reach. Why'd you get it started? I first got into it because at the time, I was really trying to get into the media scene here in Trinidad and Tobago because the media industry here in Trinidad and Tobago, there are so many walls that are in place. And I remember that I had graduated from doing my undergrad program. I was actually my final year when I started writing. And eventually that led to YouTube because there were so many other people that I looked up to and I admired in the YouTube space. Basically, that's where it started. Me really just wanting a space to express my thoughts and ideas. Right on. I appreciate that. Um, Alikia, you turned us on to Trini Trent TV. How did you come across Trini Trent's show? And what impact have you seen the show make? I came across Trini Trent TV kind of early. I know one thing that I was looking for in particular was looking to understand other cultures of the Caribbean. And um, I didn't know too much about Trinidad and Tobago. And at the time he was covering like a big event, you could say, or a festival called Soka Monarch. And, but beyond that, 
I noticed that as he would talk about pop culture things, like some other channels I was watching, what was different about him is that he would have the tendency, and I think now he's more intentional about it, um, to go to like a deeper or underlying question. So if a music video comes out or an album, um, or if we're just talking about a performance, he would use that to talk about whether that particular project, let's just say project, whether it's degrading to women or how women should understand it, or, you know, if it was homophobic and what, what things that someone may not, you know, may overlook um, to pay attention to, or uh, just the question of like blackness altogether, there was always a deeper level to how he was talking about pop culture. And I think that's part of his impact. It's not talking about this artist or that artist just for the sake of talking about it, but it's how does this affect not only my life, but the people around me or a community or a sector of the community. And so I think that's a good impact to have. It's like uh, creating a culture of of thinkers and um, not just consuming for the sake of consuming. Trent. I've noticed that while you really respect the African musical traditions coming out of the U.S., you've also placed a lot of emphasis on decentering the United States in your musical analysis. In the U.S., when Africans think of music from the Caribbean, they tend to think of reggae. However, you offer up a very good history of another musical form from the Caribbean, Calypso. Calypso is not just a music, it is also safe to say that it is in fact a culture. I read that Calypso was born out of a history of African resistance to colonial slavery. So what can you tell us about that? Calypso is a very special thing. And it's interesting because I haven't gone a lot into Calypso on the channel. I've spoken more about Soka, which is the baby of Calypso. Um, You know, it was birthed from Calypso. Calypso is the seed. And Soka in many ways has branched out from that. But Calypso in itself is an incredible art form because what Calypso represents is the musical oral history of the African people in Trinidad and Tobago. It's very much connected to our West African heritage and our storytelling, our ability to stand up as a people and speak to each other across generations, across gender lines, across place and space, and basically inform us and educate us and entertain us and connect us and unify us in one shared history and heritage. Basically, it's interesting because so many of the different Greek Calypsonian artists, you know, when you listen to these songs, even if they're singing about something that somebody might consider to be so rude, because, you know, there's a Trinidadian people, a very big part of our culture is our underlying sexuality, despite us being very conservative as a people, in my honest opinion, we still have this underlying sexuality where we may not flat out say what we're talking about, but we use a lot of innuendo and a lot of ambiguity. But even in that, when you listen to these songs, especially those older Calypso songs, but it still continues today in the Calypso art form in some sense, 
even in the most entertaining, sexually driven type music, you can hear this underlying discourse and conversation about the time period. So Calypso songs in many ways operate like time capsules, where what they do is that they allow us to share our story about what's going on in the world around us and it's put on wax or it's put down and now it's digital. Wax is old time thing. I'm sound like an old man. But it's basically put down in, in, in a recorded form for future generations to understand. And in many ways, Calypso was also used for Black people, especially in the early 1900s, to speak about their, their experience of colonialism and speak about what was happening politically in the space of Trinidad and Tobago. And that progressed through our independence in 1962 onward into the later 1900s, where people would speak about what's happening in the world around us. So every time there's a, a development in the country, politically, socially, even now with COVID-19, you hear the artists taking that and that will inform the music. But I think how it has changed over the years as far as Calypso is that Many people complain about this, and I, I, I myself feel it in some way, and I, I wouldn't say I complain, because I, I, I like to admire people's creativity. But, and I'm not a Calypsonian, so I know the work that goes into that, and I, I, I'm not ready to have that, that level of, of, to say that I could do that. But what I would say is that the, the fun of Calypso in many ways that was also present, because you, know, you have all these different dimensions. You had fun songs that were still storytelling, but they did it in a fun, lewd, sexual way, as I described, or it would be more serious, or it would be lighthearted or very sorrowful. It seems like a lot of these songs have become very much teacher weaving the rod, talking about this is a problem, and trying to hold governments and political systems accountable. But we've taken so much of the lightheartedness out of it. And I think that's why in many ways, some people consider Calypso to be a dying art form now, because the younger generations haven't taken to it as much of this as they've taken to soca. And that's because Calypso is not seen as fun. But for in many ways, it's still continuing because it's still something that children, some children get into because you have the junior Calypso monarch and you have the younger generations getting into it. But I will say it doesn't have the same impact like it had before, especially now that many of us are looking toward the world. We become very much globalized. So the way that we consume news and you learn about the times is through the internet now. And back then, a big way of learning about the times was you turn on the radio and you listen to the latest Calypso song. And yeah, you know what's going on because you may have read the paper, but you hear it in song and you, you can relate to that. And also back then, we were more insulated as a people. For instance, my grandmother never left Trinidad and Tobago. She never went on a plane in her entire life. And... Back then, that was how we connected through our Calypso music and through our songs. So when we were talking about what was happening with, you know, before independence and after, it was real and it was the only focus of the people. You know, what was happening to our country? Now, the average person knows more about what's going on with Cardi B than they know what's going on in Parliament. So, and that's no shade to Cardi B. I like Cardi B, but still, yeah. No, but but hey, that maybe that's a shade to Parliament. You know what I mean? Unless we talk about Parliament Funkadelic, and they need to know about what's going on with Parliament Funkadelic, right? <laughs> <laughs> George Clinton, twenty twenty four. So uh, when it comes to Calypso, the sound of Calypso is very different than a lot of traditional African musics that come out of the U.S., namely blues. Right, the blues tradition. 
But when you look at a Calypso guy and you look at a blues guy, like they look the same, you know, uh, when you look at those old, they have like a, you know, a brother have on like a pink hat with a pink suit and a mouthful of gold teeth with a bunch of rings. And so every time I look at a Calypso dude, I'm thinking to myself like, okay, that's a blues guy. I know he's not, I know the music sounds a little different, but if he dressed like a blues guy, then there must be something connected to, to the blues uh, taking place there. So. Calypso has influenced a lot of musical cultures throughout the Caribbean and even on the continent of Africa. I've noticed that Calypso is sometimes used as a catch-all for a variety of Caribbean folk musics, such as mento and other musics that uh, influence uh, uh, reggae and things like that. Can either one of you all speak to how you believe Calypso, and at least Calypso culture maybe has influenced uh, other forms of African music traditions throughout the Caribbean. Uh, um, Alikia, Trent, I want to go back just a bit before Trent answers. Um, I know he can talk about the other genres that Calypso influenced, but what you just said about the blues and Calypso, and I know you were talking about more so the looks of um, you know the person singing, but I think the the lyrics too, like the genres, like you said, the sound is uh, you know, different, you know, but in terms of what a blues singer is talking about and based on what Trent just explained with Calypso and what those messages would be, that is also another similarity that exists between those two genres. It's just, they're using, you know, different accents, different slangs or different languages and but it's essentially the same problems being talked about. It just looks different because it's in a different place. It's in, you know, the Caribbean versus um, in the U.S. But I think that's just another connection that can be made between um, blues and calypso, since that's what you were using as two examples of how, um, you know, our music kind of reflects each other. Trent can answer about um, the other genres that Calypso has influenced. I love the fact that you took it back to that point, because when he was saying it, I wanted to to tackle that because I love that. Because I had this conversation with a friend of mine recently, um, and I will get to the question because I I just want to really talk about this. It's exciting. Uh, A friend of mine who's African-American, he is one of the most brilliant singers I know, and he sings so beautifully, like anything you put in front of him, he can sing. And... um, you know, we were talking about the difference between the music here in Trinidad and the music in America and the African-American style versus what we hear here in Calypso music and soca music. And, you know, the difference between the blues singer and the Calypso singer, in my opinion, just listening to the different art forms is that, and it's it's something that a lot of, I, I notice myself when I try to sing along with the music, I instinctively don't do like a vocal run. I don't do a lot of riffing and a lot of running and these different things. I, I, it's amazing for me to listen to, but it just is not where instinctively when I sing along with a song in the car or in the shower, because I'm not a professional singer, I don't naturally gravitate to that. And that's because that's not what Calypso music and soca music has traditionally been about, especially Calypso. Calypso has always been very melody and lyric driven. It's all about telling the story and it tells his story through words and through lyricism. So it's always about connecting those lyrics to a melody 
that will become an airworm. It's all about having the song sit in the ear of the person so that they can listen to it and they can remember the message. Whereas blues is more because of the, the expression through the run and through the expression of the sound is, is very much driven by the melody and driven by the emotion. So where it feels like you're in the moment when you're singing the blues. And like when I think of great blues singers, I think of that. I think like they're in the moment expressing the, either the angst or the pain or the sorrow. And that's what comes up in the, in through the way that they will sometimes just wail on a record. And I always tell people in my mind, that is what's missing from R&B music today. When I listen to R&B, it's so rhythm driven. It's all about the beat, but we've lost touch. And not all, I can't say overall, because that would be unfair. But I feel like some songs don't have space for the blues because it's so focused on the beat. It doesn't have that emotional expression. But when I think about the question, I don't want to forget the question, the influence that um, Calypso has had on other um, African art forms in and thinking about music in the Americas, I think about the impact that Calypso has had on so many different things. A good example of that could just simply be reggae. Calypso has had a huge impact on reggae music. And me as a listener, and me also as somebody who with my, I always say my limited knowledge, you know, because it's, it's impossible to say that you can say I'm a master of this, um, at least for me at my young age. But I listen to reggae music and the storytelling and the pacing of it is very much connected. And that's because we as African people, so much of our culture in the Caribbean and through the Americas, right up through the diaspora into North America and, and Canada, you know, so much of our our culture is connected. So we develop different art forms based on the geographical space that we inhabit, you know, where, where we were dropped off and where we decided to build and grow and develop our communities, basically. And through our individual experiences as collective communities or even on an individual level, so we develop our different art forms in that way, but they're still connected at the root. The root of it is still in Africa. And when you hear... Calypso, you can hear the impact that Calypso has had on reggae as far as his storytelling, but you can also hear where reggae also got influenced by mento and got influenced by other art forms. And by going back to the root, you can see all it all came from Africa. When I think about North America, I think in many ways, and this is just my opinion, and I heard Dougie Fresh express this once, you know, legendary rapper, he said that hip-hop, in many ways, has its roots in Calypso music. And he was very adamant about that. And I agree with him. That, and of course, the many great um, North American artists who have West Indian roots or have participated in Calypso music. I mean, even Maya Angelou herself sang Calypso at one point, or at least a form of Calypso. So, yeah. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Trini Trent and Elikia Ngoma. The oil industry is very big in Trinidad. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, Trinidad became a major migration point for many Africans throughout the Caribbean as well as other places. People came from Barbados, from Haiti, from Jamaica, and many other places to Trinidad. Some prominent people from Trinidad, like C.R.L. James and George Padmore, in fact, had roots on other Caribbean islands. Also, my co-host Matsumela's great-grandmother was born and raised in Trinidad before she moved to Panama. Trinidadian culture is very influenced by the political economy of the region, and we could see this in the still pan. What is the still pan? How is it linked to the political and economic history of Trinidad? <laughs> 
Okay, so the steel pan is basically, it started off, some people call it a steel drum, as well as basically imagine a drum that has been a big oil drum that has been fashioned at the, at the top to be bent in and shaped. So when it's beaten, it creates a melody. And each section of the, the shaping of that drum, of the top of the pan, as we call it, each part has a different part of that melody. It plays a different note. And of course, there are different types of pans. You know, you have the, you have the tenor pan, etc. I'm not the biggest steel pan aficionado. And that's because when I was little, I did not like the steel pan at all. I couldn't take it. My mother is a huge pan person. Oh, she goes to every steel pan competition. She, she is in that. Steel pan is her thing. I didn't like it because I was a child and I remember going to the Queen's Park Savannah where you'll have Panorama. That's the, big, the biggest steel pan competition in the world. And you will have all these competing bands. They come there and they play against each other. And of course, they will have, you'll be judged and then there'll be a crown winner. And I remember being a little boy going to that and hating it because it was so loud and there were so many people. And you can imagine you're, you're literally beating steel. So it's very loud. And as a child, Trent did not like to be around a lot of noise. Trent did not like to be around a lot of dust, which is Queen's Park Savannah. It's very dusty at the early start of the year. And all the people and all the stuff like that. So I just wanted to go home and that typically meant going by granny. And being my granny, I got to not, have to endure the steel pan. Even though she will have it on the TV, I could just go in the yard and run around and be a boy. And it was very much that. But as I got older, I started to appreciate steel pan in a very different way. Because learning what steel pan is to Black people here in Trinidad and Tobago, you start to understand the power of it, the significance of it. You know, steel pan having its roots in the outskirts of Port of Spain in an area called Lavantil, and or some people call it Lavanti. And Lavantil, being the on the outside of the capital city, many of the workers of Port of Spain come from Lavantil, traditionally came from Lavantil. Many of the people who have built Port of Spain came from Lavantil. Carnival in itself, Trinidad Carnival, has its roots in East Port of Spain, at the foot of the hills of Lavantil. So the history of what Steel Pan is, the music that came down from the hills of Lavantil and spread throughout the nation and throughout the world is understanding that this is an instrument that was created by Black people in Black communities in a Black country that has impacted the world. I mean, it's the only instrument of its kind that has had that impact in, in the 20th century. And it has its roots in earlier Trinidad and Tobago history, but it really took hold in the 20th century. And for it to really take its shape and its form in a Black community and spread throughout the world in the way that it has, to the fact that, to the fact that people, when they think of the Caribbean, they typically think of Bob Marley, they think of reggae, they think of, if they know sports, Usain Bolt. But the one key significant thing that is never left out is the steel pan. We as Black people in this country create as something that is known globally. And when people hear it, you know what the steel pan sounds like. I really felt, the first time I truly felt connected to it was when I was in New York City. I was no long, I was living abroad and I wasn't home in Trinidad anymore. I was moving and I said, yes, I'm out in the world on my own. And I remembered it was winter. It was early 2014. This is when I started to grow my Afro. And this is when I entered my true black power phase. And I remembered going through so much frustration, feeling not really understood in the space that I was in. And I just heard this melody 
and I didn't know where it was coming from. And I was walking through the train station and down in the middle of the platform, there it was, a man beating a steel pan. And it was something, it, I wanted to cry. It, it moved through me. And it was because this was a melody that not just sounded like home, but it was a melody that was telling me a story without words. Steel Pan was revolutionary and Steel Pan empowered people. Wow, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Uh, oh, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Uh, especially the way through which it was uh, a product of resistance, because I know that there was something called a Kambule. I think it's called Kambule. Kambule. Uh, yeah, Kambule. Yeah, and and uh, uh, and and the Kambule uprisings and things like that, which which really is connected to uh, Steel Pan, but also the way through which Africans in, like you said, even in the outskirts of these areas, took this uh, product of really the uh, economic domination of the people trained at the oil industry, but then turned it into. Uh, something that really is representative of a global African uh, community. Thanks for that. Um, did you want to say anything about this before we move to the next question, Alika? Because I know that Steel Pan has had a, a influence even in uh, the music culture. Yeah. Hey. Um, well, I just wanted to appreciate Trent for um, what you know he just laid out in terms of the history of of Steel Pan. I think it reminds me of actually something you quoted very early into this show. Uh, and I don't remember it word for word, but basically even through the struggles that Black people are enduring, uh, we are still creating. <laughs> and you see that, you know, everywhere we are. Um, in Haiti, we have these handheld horn instruments called cornet, which every time I think about steel pan, they're not even used necessarily in the same styles, but I always think about cornet, which is um, these types of horns that are created um, through pieces of metal, and they have different shapes and sizes, and you can only blow one note, an octave up and an octave low, and so each size has its appropriate note, as in, you know, C, D, E, F, or some uh, places will say do, re, mi. Um, and so you will see, like, it takes an ensemble of people to actually give you a full sound because each player has their appropriate note or part that they're playing. Sometimes you'll see someone with two corner in their hands. Sometimes you see three, depending on how big or small um, they are. And I think these things just speak to, like, the, the genius of the Black community. Um, especially if you want to say poor and working class community, not in, in, you know, an insulting way, but I mean, the lack of resources or access to resources that other countries may have, you know, we still are going to create something, not only music, we're going to create the instruments to play the music with, you know, and I think that's just very um, powerful and just something that you know, I, I appreciate. Uhuru, uhuru. Trent, there's a good book on U.S. relations to Trinidad called Caliban and the Yankees by a guy named Harvey Neptune. It examines the period of U.S. occupation of Trinidad from 1941 to 1947. 
Elikia. This is actually right on the heels of the U.S. occupation of Haiti. In what ways did the musical traditions in the Caribbean develop in response to U.S. imperialism? I know that Harvey Neptune does a good anti-colonial analysis of the song Rum and Cola, in which he shows how, you know, it really was a resistance song, but then it becomes like, you know, just this sort of, you know, depoliticized song nowadays. So what can you all tell us about the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist character of Caribbean music? And you can even talk about soca and other forms of Caribbean music that, you know, we haven't addressed just yet. Uh, Trent, do you mind if I come in on this one? Okay. <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at genres that come from what people would call the ghetto or, you know, the hoods and stuff like that, those genres tell you the response of the people, even if they don't know that that's what they're doing, you know, or even if they don't know what imperialism means or colonialism or even neocolonialism, even here in the U.S. where they talk about the man you know, or just other expressions for the government or police or local officials and stuff like that. That's what they're doing um, without saying this is an anti-imperialist song or anti-colonial song. And so whether it's in reggae music, dancehall music, or Calypso, or if I want to talk about Haiti, you want to talk about uh, Yasin and Lala, that I was talking about, they are giving anti-imperialist and anti-colonial expressions. I know that in Haiti, sometimes it's a little, it's a little more explicit in how they come at the U.S. as opposed to how they come at the neo-colonial leaders that's right there in the country. So, like in the songs, they will say, you know, "blanc colon," which means the colonizer white, or they'll say "blanc français," you know, white and in French, or blonde we can, or they will just, you know, say we have to get these blondes out of our country. They will say that, you know, but that's also because Haiti has a, you know, particular history of ongoing resistance there. And when it comes to um, the, the government, they'll just say, you know, the bourgeois, um, which in the Uhura movement, we would say the petty bourgeoisie, because they're not the actual bourgeoisie. But they would say it a different kind of way, basically saying, you know, stop coming into office and taking the money. Because when you look at what imperialism is, what it does around the world, um, or colonialism, in terms of going into 80% of the world, um, and through violence, through rape, through murder, through all of these things, killing off progressive leaders, and putting in these puppets, what they're doing is coming in, taking the wealth, and leaving. And so when someone makes a song that talks about a local official that came into office taking the wealth of the country and leaving, it's the same thing that they're criticizing. They just may not know that this is imperialism in function or, or colonialism or neocolonialism. Well, what's interesting is, and thank you, Likia, I learned a lot listening to you, but what I will say is, you know, there are so many political messages that come up through the music because, as I said earlier, Calypso in itself captures and speaks to the experience of people in a certain time period. You know, it's all about having those time capsules 
captured and shared as part of the oral tradition of the people of Trinidad and Tobago and anybody else who participates in, in Calypso music. Soca in itself is not as politically driven. Soca is often criticized for being almost mindless, um, at least for now, I would say for the younger generations. It's very rare now that you hear a politically motivated or inclined soca song. You will have moments where you have an artist who may express a social thought in soca music, but the song itself will not be particularly driven by that. And that's because in many ways with the rise of what's called power soca in the early 1990s, and the man behind that is super blue in many ways. Many people consider him the father of power soca, arguably, um, being the first real driver of this type of soca music, which has a higher BPM. It became more party music and it became more Driven, even though that was already happening in the 1980s with the rise of different styles of soca, and you had different people who it wasn't all about politics, politics, politics. It became more about having fun. Calypso, on the other, on the other hand, has always been very much criticizing or challenging toward the status quo. At least that's what it was in many ways envisioned to be, a way to challenge the colonial leaders um, or to challenge the existing political system, which in many ways it's still colonial because that's the way we have parliament. You know, we have a prime minister, we have an opposition leader, opposition leader. We, we have two two sides of parliament, you know. You, you still have a senate and you have the upper house and the lower house. And it, it basically we have a mirror of what you see in the UK. But as far as thinking about that move into independence or the movement of the U.S. military bases that happened in Trinidad and Tobago, there's one song that instantly comes to mind, and they are more politically focused songs and they are more politically focused artists. But one song comes to mind for that same lighthearted, hilarity, yet politically aware song um, type of message, I would say, and that is Gene and Dinah. <laughs> by the mighty Sparrow. Now, many people do not like Sparrow. He's actually Grenadian, but he spent most of his life in Trinidad and participated in our Calypso culture. And he's considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Calypso storytellers that we had um, alongside Lord Kitchener. You know, many people growing up, you were either in a Sparrow house or a Kitchener house. You know, your parents either like Kitchener or they like Sparrow. I grew up in a house and my parents like both, but my mother, I realized she does have a little bit of a leaning towards Sparrow. And he had a song, Gina and Dinah, which basically spoke about when the military bases, the U.S. military, deoccupied Trinidad and Tobago in the mid-1900s. And in this time, when they were here, there was this rise in prostitution. You know, the working girls were coming out and getting paid because... You know, all these different Navy boys, you know, we didn't have war in Trinidad. They didn't need these bases like that. Of course, there was a reason for it because we were a connecting point. So when these Navy boys would come in their ships, the girls made a coin. And when the bases started to leave and the U.S. military started to pull out of Trinidad, and we saw the interest in Trinidad begin to wane again because the interest that we've had in Trinidad and Tobago, particularly from Europe and America, has been one, our position on the map. We have the closest island to Venezuela, Trinidad in particular. We have the southernmost Caribbean island. And we really are a connecting point between the Atlantic and the rest of the Caribbean islands come down to us and connect to South America. So that has been the value for many people, as well as our natural oil and gas. And that's why our economy has managed to stay afloat 
especially through COVID, because we've been able to rely on oil and gas, and not just on tourism. The downside to that is that we're basically a slave to the global cost of oil and gas. But beyond that, I would say that, you know, he did this song called Gene and Dinah to speak about when the bases left. And the girls now were making money. I know the whole song is Gina and Dinah, Rosita and Clementina on the corner posing, but your life is something they're selling. If you catch them broken, you can get them all for nothing. Don't make a row. Nancy gone, the Yankee gone, and Spiral take over now. And he's talking about the fact that now the girls who, were, as we say in Trinidad, bus style or look down on the men in Trinidad and Tobago because they were getting the money from, they were getting the Yankee dollar, they were getting the American boys who were come in. Now they have to go back to the men here in Trinidad and Tobago. The song in itself is, in many ways, if you're really detailed, it is a bit misogynistic. But at the same time, it and I'm not excusing that behavior by any means, but it doesn't speak to what the mindset was of that time and the social situation that was left. Because we had the rise in prostitution. And when the men left, where were these working girls going to go? Many of them still had families and children, and they still had to take care of themselves. But now the Yankees were gone. And in many ways, that is what we see with imperialism here in the Caribbean, especially on these small islands, because Trinidad and Tobago, even though we don't like to say it, but we are smaller islands. When we saw the British leave after with our independence, and even before that, because with the end of slavery, many of, many of the whites and the British left. And when the America, the great American nation, North America, no longer had much of a focus on, they didn't really need us as much, they left voids. And now we had the we had the people here in this country that still had families to feed and still had to find a way. So we've had to many in many ways just make do or try to build structures from the remnants of what was left behind. And that's that song to me tells that story. Of course there are other interpretations, but on paper it does tell straight up tell you the story of Yankee gone and now the working girls, they have to try and find a way to live. And of course Sparrow in his own way. <laughs> in a slightly misogynistic way, has followed up, you know, he swooped in as the man and now, haha, I go and take over because the Yankee gone and all that, but I have to take my money now. So we see Calypso telling those type of stories, more so than Soka. Soka has never really, I won't say never, but it no longer is popular in Soka to tell the story of what's going on. Although in COVID-19, I will say this, our Soka artists have, made a living now by talking about our experience in COVID. On the downside, and this is where many, the mindless criticism comes in, the pe- people who say it's mindless, every song now is about your home in your house and a car go outside. And it's like, okay, can, can, can we talk about something else in the soca? But that is because it's what's trending. So that's a good way of looking at it. Soca is what's trending. Calypso in itself is a conversation that lies beneath what's trending. Calypso dives deeper. You are listening to The People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Trini Trent and Alikia Ngoma. Radical scholars C.L.R. James of Trinidad and Walter Rodney of Guyana both love Calypso. James loved Calypso and Cricket. I feel like they saw it as a way to unite the African and South Asian working class in the Caribbean. Uh, What's the history of the South Asian migration into the Caribbean? And do you agree that Calypso, Soka, and Carnival have helped unite the African and South Asian working class? 
Yes, Calypso, particularly Soka, has found a way to connect us more than anything else. Calypso has always been regarded by many people as being an African art form. With the rise of Soka music, which was done and invented by one man, and one man only, um, Ra Shortiai, who was then known as Lord Shorty in the early 1970s, his work combined many of the different rhythmic sounds of the East Indian population, the South Asians, along with the African rhythms. And you know, the Dalak and the Tabla of Indian origin and combine that with so many different African sounds and melodies and styles and the lyrical structure and melodic structure of Calypso. And he created something new. And that helped to bring people together. One of the first records that he ever put out was in Jirani, and that was in 1973. His first Soka album was in 1975. The name is slipping me now, and you know I always talk about it. It's slipping me now. But his work helped to bring the people together. And what that did is that it challenged many ways the divisions that were put in place by our former colonial masters to keep us separate because it was a fear of the African and the Indian coming together to take over the country and overthrow the colonial powers. But his music challenged that. Unfortunately, those divisions still exist politically and socially in many ways. And we've seen people try to pervert the soca. You know, we've seen people try to say that soca belongs to one group or not another. We've seen people try to recreate the divisions that existed before. But through the work of what Soka really represents, it allows people to come together. The original spelling of Soka was S-O-K-A-H. That was how Rashoti first spe um, spelled the word. And he meant it to be the soul of Calypso. And he took the Ka. Um, I think he took that from, I think it was an East Indian origin. And he basically was talking about this is the soul of Calypso music, the melody, the heart, the fire, the energy, the, the ability for, soca to, for Calypso to make people move and make people want to sing and dance. And he put that into a structure that made it even more lively and more driven, more rhythm dri driven for the people of Trinidad and Tobago and eventually the world. Like when it does come to soca, it's, I swear like every Caribbean family has their own soca song for the family, right? My partner, my wife's family is from Jamaica, but also Antigua and Barbuda. And the ones from Antigua, you know, when Dalla Wine come on, they, you know, you see even her grandma, her grandma over 80 years old, she get up and she said, Dalla Wine, 20, you know, 50 cent, 25 cent, you know, she dancing back and forth and stuff and, and going, dropping to the ground. So, so there is a way through which there's, like you said, it's not as political, but but it is a certain level of community building uh, with soca music and stuff like that, uh, which which really is reflected. I mean, they love that Dollar Wine song, so I want to just give a shout out to them. But um, I want to touch on a very serious conversation as we <clears throat> near the end of this that you brought up, which is homophobia in Caribbean music cultures. I have recently mentioned this to... Uh, Likia, that I was listening to T.O.K.'s song in preparation for this discussion today. And I was struck by what I feel can only be called wasted talent within the song. You know, so much good talent on a violently homophobic song. On a progressive note, we saw Buju Bantan, uh, who was released recently. And when he was released, that was like a Caribbean holiday. You know what I mean? <laughs> remember, when Buju, remember when Buju got out and everybody was like, it was like, it, it was, it, man, it was. One uh, of my next door neighbor <laughs> blasted his music that whole day. And I was like, 
Okay. All right. This is not going to make him come here to us personally. I think you can stop now. I <laughs> know. Uh, so, so Buju also retired one of his famous songs because of this. In a recent episode of Trinity Trent TV, you tackled this issue. From what I found to be a crucial point, uh, you did not only criticize the artist, you identified the colonial contradictions of this. Can you tell us a little bit about this? And uh, Alikia, uh, you can uh, mix into that as well. Um, okay. I'm going to go a little um, back to when we were talking about that T.O.K. song because, you know, it's a song that I, I feel like I've known it my whole life. Um, I didn't know what was actually being said in, in the song until I was about 15 or 16. Um, but I know that what always attracted me to the song, one, because it was like dance hall and Caribbean, but also the melody that they used came from a song that I grew up singing, another song, a Christmas song. So um, that speaks to the question of like, how you say the amount of talent, like just listening to that song is like, wow. And then I remember when I was a teenager and finally learned what the song was about, I was, you know, almost heartbroken. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, and um, it's, you know, music, music is a, is a tool of expression and the same way we can have positive expressions of what's going on in the community you know those negative things will be expressed as well I mean if you look at um, not only in the Caribbean uh, dance hall stands out a little bit in particular but if you're looking at hip-hop and some of the lyrics you'll get in some of your favorite songs even if the whole song is not about that there's always that one line in there you'd be like oh my goodness why did you have to say this? And um, and I'm leaving room for Trent because I know he's going to talk about, you know, what he elaborated in that video in terms of, like, the, co- the colonial origins. But I think that's when you recognize that the music is often a reflection of the culture, it should inspire you to get to, okay, how can we fix this in the culture? How can we remove this sentiment in the culture? Because... One person had to say it, someone else had to agree with it, and then enough people had to unite with it to make it a hit song. So even if that song did not exist or, you know, Buju's song did not exist or, you know, X, Y, and Z song did not exist, that sentiment is was already there in the, in the community, and that song just validated um, that kind of sentiment. So... Uh, Trent could go more into the background, but I did just want to say why that kind of conversation or why looking at music that way is very important. It is very important. It is very important for us to pay attention because music carries messages and music is a way for us to share ideologies and share ways of thinking. And it's cross-generational. It crosses ages, genders, sexualities, name it. Music travels like nothing else. It is one of the most powerful tools that we as a species have. And it's very interesting to see how homophobia has latched on. And in many ways, people latch on too, I should say, because homophobia is an ideology, it doesn't operate by itself. But we continue to perpetuate this way of thinking. And it's because of the patriarchal structure in which we exist. The lines that have been drawn in the sand that have taught us that this is what masculinity is within a 
Caribbean space or within the world in a patriarchal society, this is what is accepted masculinity. And homophobia is what defines, well, not defines it, but what reinforces what is allowed and what is not allowed. It, it polices that line between what is masculine, acceptable, the acceptable masculinity versus the masculine other, as I call it. You know, what is not acceptable? What is, what is something that needs to be ostracized, something that needs to be marginalized, something that needs to be punished, something that needs to be destroyed? And when you hear songs like that T.O.K. song, you know, I never understood the lyrics of that record when I was little. Not little, because I'm not that young. <laughs> but I, I never really got the lyrics. Because at the time that came out on a rhythm, you know, that, you know, like a, a standard track that other artists had jumped on. And hearing that on a rhythm, it was just one of the songs that played in the rhythm. But when you hear it clearly and you really pay attention to the lyrics, especially when you see the music video, it becomes chilling. Because in the music video you realize it's something very dark and very ominous and very much basically addressing black hoods. So you basically know the story that the, the message that they're trying to send is one of death and destruction. And the other types of songs that exist, I mean, we've had songs by so many different, especially when you think about it being mainly in dancehall music. And I have to say dancehall um, not always specifically reggae, at least not so aggressively. Um, and it's not to say that it has not existed in some moments in Soka, very few moments, and even a couple moments in, in Calypso. But when it comes to dancehall music, it is very violent. And that's because dancehall music tends to be more graphic in its detailing, in its storytelling. It's more direct, especially when talking about subjects of sex. <laughs> Like something as simple as sex, it is never simple, I should say, in dancehall. They have to give you every single detail, like vibes and Lady Soul back before she was Sister Marianne and Spice and all these other artists. They would tell they you exactly what they were going to do, gonna put it. <laughs> nothing to the imagination. And so that's why dancehall music is not something that is played. In my mother's house, <laughs> growing up, and it's not something that you play. You put that on your headphones. I just see very mention of Bounty Killer would turn my mother into a preacher. My mother would go into a whole tirade. But, you know, it's always been very graphic. And when you bring that into the conversation of homophobia, it's just as graphic and it's just as brutal. And when you think about hypermasculinity in Black spaces, especially in Black spaces that have been touched by colonialism, which is basically almost all Black spaces, homophobia is something in, in its existing form. You know, many people, when they break into conversations of homophobia, especially here in Trinidad and Tobago, they start quoting the Bible. And, you know, it's because that was what was taught to them. Master taught you how to pray. Master taught you what to say when you pray. Master taught you how to dress when you pray. Master taught you where to go to pray. And it has remained an echo through generations. And they start quoting the Bible because it's what was taught to them. Oh, Leviticus, and oh, we're going out, oh, the end of times. Christmas coming is still eating ham. You have a tattoo on your back. You're drinking alcohol. You're smoking. And you're doing how many women on this side, other than your wife or other than your husband? But it, they hold on to that homophobia. Why? Because it is a message that is continuously massaging to the minds, either from the pulpit or from the DJs on the radio. Or even in the classrooms, or even in the household, it is something that is continuously massaged into the minds of the people. 
it is something that has been accepted in the culture because it's been passed on to us through our experience of not just religion. I don't want to just put it on religion, but it's also been passed on through our socialization because religion in itself is a part of the socialization of the people. It's been passed on through our socialization. It's been taught to us. And then it is aggressively reinforced through stuff like the music. What does the future hold for African music and culture coming out of the Caribbean? What role can it play in international African struggle? I can say for what's coming out of Haiti, um, I talked about Carnaval in particular a little earlier because that genre, at this point, I would say from 2019, all the 2019 releases and 2020 releases, I've, I've gotten that same sentiment too of being slightly impressed and then also tired, like, Okay, this is hundreds of music saying the same thing, but it's necessary because it reflects the period that the people are in. I think this period that we're going into or that we're in now, it looks similar to like the period that existed when Bob Marley and Nina Simone and, you know, you could say a range of years that existed, um, even Tupac when it comes to hip hop. And it's never a coincidence that these kinds of artists are big when they are big in terms of Fela Kuti as well, um, because what they were talking about reflects the the everyday life of the people. And so, yes, people are getting married, and yes, people are in love and having parties and et cetera, but real life happens too, and the artists that speak to that are the ones that usually stick the most and become the most prominent. I don't know how, what the future is going to look like, but that's what I see going on from from my standpoint. I think, and I like everything that Ilikia just said. Um, I really appreciate what she said because it is a, a different perspective. And I I want to say that a quick moment here in Ilikia, it'll, she is very much very passionate and very clear on Haitian culture and Haitian music. And hearing her speak and just reading her comments over the years on YouTube and just seeing these the messages that she's put out, I've learned just by hearing her speak. And I just want to use this little moment just to say that. I see music, African music or Desi music of the islands, music of Black music globally. I see us in many ways coming closer together in sound. Like when I think of the fact that Soka now has had, Soka music from Trinidad and Tobago has had an impact on so much of the music right now in West Africa. Like when you listen to Afrobeats and, you know, you hear the impact of Soka over there. And it's it's so amazing. It's like a full circle thing. It's because like the children of Africa are now influencing their, the homeland, you know, in many ways. Soka music is, which is, a child of Calypso, which is a child of the West African art form, is now having an impact on West Africa itself. And you see Soka itself borrowing from Afrobeats. And you see Soka being influenced also by hip-hop over the years. And you've also seen, you know, this blending of these sounds to the point that there are certain Soka songs now when they come out, you can't always call them Soka. They just label them a 2021 release or whatever release. They don't only call it Soka anymore because... It's difficult to label it as soca because people don't always agree that it is soca. And that has caused many an argument. I would say that the genres are coming closer and closer together. 
because we were separated by geography for so many decades and so many generations. And now through technology, we are getting closer and closer and closer together. And our art forms are blending. And now we could just reach out to each other and send each other a track and everybody could collaborate without even leaving their house. I also see the music becoming more progressive in the messages. You know, women have really found their voice in music. And, you know, recently in Trinidad and Tobago, we we saw the passing and the tra- I call the transition of one of our great so, um, Calypso artists, singing Sandra. She passed away recently, but she very much was a strong foundation figure for Calypso music, especially for women here in Trinidad and Tobago. And so many young soca artists, female soca artists, and men were heavily influenced by the work that she did. And when you listen to the music now, because she was always very bold and she told a story, especially when she spoke about the, the struggle of the, the impoverished and people who didn't have money. She spoke about, you know, life in the ghetto and she had no, you know, she had a song called Crying. I think it's Crying in the Ghetto is the name of the song. And she has no, she used to tell those stories very in a very real way, speak of the African experience of the people here in Trinidad and Tobago. And when you think of that strong voice having an impact on women to find their own voices. So it's no longer just a wave of songs by men telling girl to bend over. Bend over girl, wine for men. You know, the objectification of women through the music. We have women now saying, what you going to do for me? I own my body. Finally, I would say what we, what I also see, I see music opening spaces very slowly for other representations of people. We are moving away from the binary gender expressions in music and the the single-mindedness of what it is to be a rapper, for instance, in hip-hop. Slowly, that door still is, is very much almost tightly shut, but there's a little glimmer of light that coming under the door. And I see different expressions and different artists. I, I predict that they will finally break through sometime soon. So what I would say is that we're progressing. We're getting there. We just need more voices and more people to believe in those voices. But I think it will happen. Oh, 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 thanks for that. Thanks for that. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Trini Trent and Elikia Ngoma. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus, or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Trini Trent and Elikia Ngoma, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If it's one thing I want is for the government to come.